0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey. Um, Before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. I recommend Squarespace to people all the time because people ask me all the time, How can I put up this website? Can you help me? No, I cannot help you, and no one wants to help you put up a website, except Squarespace does. They make it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. There's nothing to install, there's nothing to patch, there's nothing to upgrade. You can customize everything so it's exactly the website you want without having to get all into the code and all that stuff. You wanna go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you, Squarespace. Hello, and welcome to Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. We have an illness in the family here. That's true. Um, Max Linsky, uh, this weekend, uh, a bunch of people were at the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. Uh, Max is now in the hospital. Yes, with an eye problem. He's having uh, a... He scratched his eye... uh, Send him your well wishes at Max Linsky. Uh, We're hoping he's out in the next day or two, Uh, but uh, really unfortunate. Yeah, get well, Max. He'll be back soon. But in the meantime... In the meantime, uh, I did the uh, interview this week. Uh, It's with Tyler Cowen, uh, who is an economist. Um, He is one of the earliest... uh, Economics bloggers I know out there. Uh, he's had marginal revolution since 2003, wow. which, uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, is is a pretty big deal. Um, but he also writes all over the place. He was writing for the New York Times. He now writes for Bloomberg. So he's writing for like the hardest of the hardcore economic audiences. And then he also writes about everything. He's got a uh, blog that's reviews of hole in the wall restaurants all over the DC area. He writes about music he writes about art i didn't actually i was uh, researching this um interview he wrote a book in the 90s about the relationship between art and capitalism which is a both an interesting topic and also i think an interesting topic to go back and look at in the 1990s yeah wow Uh, pre-internet pre-internet so it was a fantastic conversation really like Seriously, I don't always feel this way about uh, our interviews for the show. I would just go talk to Tyler Cowan. Like if I could have dinner with him once a week, I totally would. You could throw about any topic at him, and he's got something pretty interesting to say about it. That's a good one. Uh, Aaron, if you wanted to throw topics at people, how would you do that? Email. It's the only way that everyone is accessible, pretty much everyone. Uh, and I do it through Mailchimp. Uh, They make it really easy to maintain an email list. You don't even have to pay until you reach a certain point. So if you're starting a new project and it needs an email list, I recommend MailChimp. And now, get well, Max. Here's Aaron with Tyler Cowen. Welcome, Tyler Cowen. Hello. So what brings you to New York right now? Let's start
1: there. I want to see uh, the exhibits at Sotheby's and Christie's. I don't shop there, but I enjoy looking. Michelangelo Drawings Show is on at the Met, and tonight my wife and I are going to see Exterminating Angel at the opera.
0: Wow, you keep a packed, uh, packed schedule.
1: I try to come to New York maybe about once a month just to take in everything that's going on up
0: here. So you write about economics, but you also write about everything, and this idea of having a broad cultural view seems to really inform your writing. Is that a strategic choice by you, or is that just who you are?
1: It's who I am. A lot of my early work in economics was on the economics of culture, art, music, cinema. And I think economists are very bad at understanding that people see the world differently, because in most of our models, there's one correct answer for the variables. And we tend to assume that's how they're seen. But most of what actually happens is people seeing the same event differently. And in 2017, that resonates with people in a way it maybe didn't 10 or
0: 20 years ago. I hadn't thought about that. It really, uh, this is the right time to tell people that.
1: Yeah, so there's a kind of cultural end. So Native American art or Persian carpets, they're made by people with different worldviews and they're seeing everything differently. And so to take that framework and apply it to politics, apply it to economic decision making, for me is the last great frontier in
0: economic science. Okay, let's talk about that. When did you get involved? When did economics call to you at what point in your life? age 13, 14. I went to the public library,
1: read a bunch of books, loved it. I thought, this is it. I basically gave up chess
0: within a year. You were a chess champion at the time.
1: That's correct. I was playing very young and did well. And I learned from chess that you can lose and that you need to be honest about what you don't know. But ultimately, chess is a limited game and you can't make a living doing it unless you're very, very, very good. So here is this new thing, economics. And I started reading economics
0: and also philosophy. What was it like to give up something that you're that serious about when you're 13 or 14 years old?
1: It was fine because I had new passions and the new passions were broader. You could talk about them with many more people. There were more events you could go to. You could think about how the new passion would build into your future life. It didn't feel like a dead end.
2: Yeah.
0: So
1: there was no psychological discontinuity for me.
0: At the time you were in college and training to become an economist, were people encouraged to write for a pop-cultural, non-economics audience at that point? What, what kind of a, a path were you expected to take as an economics student? Well, there was no
1: internet. So the idea that you could reach people, right. <laughs> no one even dreamt of. So right. that's been a huge change, but the yeah. world was different. So the what you might call the battle against communism was the number one issue. It's not really an issue now, which is good for the world, but the environment that you have so much freedom in terms of what you learn and whom you reach, that's something that really has revolutionized many of our lives
0: at what point in your career did the internet come in
1: i started blogging i don't i think it was 2003 pretty uh, early pretty That's early like
0: pre-blogspot even i think
1: i don't even know yeah we've kept a version of our early blog design as yeah. a kind of homage to those days and uh, you know i thought at the time well if i reach a few thousand people this will be amazing it's yep. a bigger audience than i ever thought i would have and the notion that i would have 10 or 20 times that much Uh, I didn't even really dream of.
0: When you started trying to weave in, um, like you wrote a book about art and commerce and their interaction between culture and capitalism uh, in the 90s. When you started weaving that stuff together, what were the challenges of pairing traditional economics with these broader cultural ideas?
1: It was a very unusual topic at the time. It was considered highly fringe, maybe not economics at all. Today, it would be completely accepted as a possible topic for economics. Yeah. So uh, I feel I got lucky with that, and the skills I learned were important. Uh, But from early on, I always thought I had a kind of duty to learn as much as I possibly could. That was more important than writing economics. So I spent maybe 25 years just studying things in a way that a lot of my peers didn't. Uh, My career took off relatively late, but I had this foundation of just 25 years of intense study, like 10, 12 hours a day, trying to learn about the world. And in in a way, it seemed quite wasteful. And then the internet comes along and it's like, hey, this is useful. Hey,
0: everyone's going to waste their life this way now.
1: That's right. I I can try to say something every day and see if people want to listen.
0: Okay. So let's talk about before the internet, when you were in a small minority of people who just sat around looking at things and reading them all day and you were trying to build that knowledge base. And traveling. And traveling. How did you approach that project? How do you design a course of education when it's not within a PhD program and it's not within, um, I have a book deal and I have to write a book on this topic so I'm doing research. How do you approach being a generalist in terms of just researching the world?
1: My main advice for people is to find mentors in the areas you want to learn about. From the mentors you may learn information, yes, but more importantly, they'll bring a field to life for you. They'll teach you how to find quality material in that field, they'll give you their framing. Mm. And yours you hope should be different from that. But in areas like music and the arts, to find people you can learn immense amounts from very quickly and then just read, read, read. Who were your mentors? Oh, and you know, in terms of contemporary art, there was a fellow named Joseph Levine who still lives in New York. I learned a great deal from Yeah. and classical music, a guy named Chris Weber, another guy named Roy Childs who knew phenomenal amounts. And I would borrow things from their collection and talk to them about it. Economics and social science early on a fellow named Walter grinder. So always, always look for mentors. It's, sounds trivial you'll find it in so many management books but it's still
0: underrated advice and you yourself are now a professor and uh, yes. do you mentor students do you uh, have you switched roles now uh both
1: i still look for mentors yeah if people email me if i can often i can't but i do actually try to meet up with people and learn something from them and maybe they learn something from me so students yes but you should view it more broadly than that
2: you
0: have a most recent book uh, yes. it's called The Complacent Class. It's interesting to me because I've read your blog, Marginal Revolution, uh, for years. And I remember the idea of complacency popping up well before this book. I think I remember reading an interview with you at one point where you said, like, what is the one thing you uh, dislike the most about yourself or the impulse that you fight in yourself? And you said complacency. And I was mm-hmm. like, Yeah. Oh. It's an interesting response. So it seems like an idea that had been swirling around for you for a while that eventually gelled into this book. I'm interested in when you take on a topic like that, how you build from blog posts to research to a chapter in the book to an overall idea for the whole book that has a conclusion and kind of a thesis. Like, how do you start building an argument like that? A lot of books are based on one core idea that can be summed up in a title.
1: Yeah. And getting that idea is really, really hard (laughs) and you can't overplan it. Yeah. It usually happens you're giving a talk or more commonly talking with someone and you or they say something and you go away and you think about it more. And then maybe within a few weeks or months, you'll think, well, that could be a book. Then you'll think that should be a book. And once you get to that point, I don't want to say it's mechanical, but I have written, I think, 16 books. Yeah. So you learn how to research the idea. Yeah. And you have the idea because you've already been working on associated facts. And the pieces fall together. And then you write it over the course of, say, a year and a half, year and three quarters. And then
0: you have a book. So in the case of this book, The Complacent Class, give me the, uh, you're sitting next to someone on the airplane and you're describing this book, uh, 30 Second Pitch. What, what is the book about?
1: America has become too risk averse, whether it is how much we stay at home or how we raise our children or how much more segregated our society is. We have in a way become cowards and we look inward rather than being bold and challenging the world.
0: The parts of the book that really stuck with me were ways that it challenged my sort of intuitive grasp of what's happening in America. I'll give an example. I am... Not really in the startup world, but at one point, long form tried to raise money. I know venture capitalists. I know people starting startups. And I was a product manager at one point. So if you had asked me, I would say, America's startup crazy. Like, everyone wants to do a startup. Every 22-year-old is, like, learning about how to do startups. And then the book makes this argument that actually startups are on the decline. Yes. When you're researching something like that, where do you start? Do you start at a statistical level? Like, how do you peel back that veneer of an assumption that um, startups are everywhere, which is certainly what you'd think if you picked up a business magazine today?
1: I'd say I spend, you know, maybe 10 or even more hours a day just reading things, cataloging facts mentally. Yeah. So you build up this library, this reservoir within yourself. And most of it, you don't know that you ought to care about it, but then you get a so big idea for a book and then you look into your reservoir your library and well what do I know that relates to that and the the big idea clicks because there are actually a lot of things in your reservoir that fit into the pattern and it's like oh my goodness I see commonalities that maybe other people haven't seen
0: how do you choose what to read because I feel like I read all the time and somehow I came to the conclusion that America is startup crazy from reading all the time
1: there were some pieces by John Haltowanger, who's a very good economist looking at corporate churn, how frequently companies turn over the rates at which they become these so-called unicorns, how many new companies there are, how many startups there are. And I had read those pieces, I think, to blog them. And I filed it away in the back of my mind. And then it started to come together with other things. I read all these crazy stories. Schools won't let the kids play tag. Or some kid, he went to school with a Star Wars t-shirt. And they sent him home because they said it had a weapon on it. Well, it did have a lightsaber. I mean, that is a weapon, but that to me seems crazy. Yeah. And just the way children are so overprotected from morning till evening, even though for children, our world is much, much safer than when I was growing up. New York was a kind of terror place.
0: Often you'll hear anecdotes like, oh, a kid, the kids can't play tag or at this university, this professor was banned or censored. And... Those are these like singular one off kind of details. And then you have another detail that's like literally like what percentage of the economy is startups? You know, it's a very like a hard factual idea. As an economist, when you take like an anecdote, like kids at this one school weren't allowed to play tag, how do you evaluate that as like a real story that you should include in a book that's making a larger economic argument versus sort of a culture story? Because I think that. On both sides of all these debates, often little stories get amplified, and the larger uh, statistical story is not very interesting. A story about uh, kids not being able to play tag is more viral than a story about the uh, percentage of the GDP that's supplied by uh, startup companies.
1: I mean, the, the number that most grabbed my attention was in the productivity statistics. They've been showing that America is much less innovative than it used to be. Mm. And people have said, oh, we're not measuring innovation correctly. Surely innovation's everywhere. Yeah, Think about the tech world. And just to take seriously, well, maybe those numbers, they're underrated. Maybe they're correct. And this has sociological roots. That we're wealthier. We stay at home more. There's new data on millennials. They have less sex than earlier generations. That to me is amazing. Somehow in the back of my mind, my presumption was each generation is going to have more and more sex because, you know, maybe in the 70s, people had more sex than in the 50s. So that trend has to continue, and that was my presumption. It turns out it's totally wrong. And when you're wrong on things, it forces you to re-examine and look back through your library and what else might be going on here. Change in mindset, society overall being more regulated, people being more risk-averse, and people are sexting more, but I think they're having less sex because they're on social media and there are other ways of having human interaction,
0: Uh, but I'm not sure that's good for us. How do you consider the the idea of good for us in our writing? Like, I feel like a lot of writing about technology has to come down very hard on one side or the other. Is technology destroying the world? Are Uber and Apple and Google uh, creating a situation that's going to be apocalyptic? Or are they the saviors? And then a lot of times you have to When you read something like that, you have to evaluate, like, what does the writer even mean by good or bad in this situation? In your own writing, how do you consider the idea of good or bad?
1: It's mostly Faustian bargains, so there are pluses and minuses. Uh, Maybe the tech companies I'm most positive about are Amazon and Google. Probably the one I'm most negative about is Facebook. I think there's just a lot of time-wasting associated with Facebook, and it seems to take over American culture in a way that maybe makes music Less direct or less related to social trends and protest, it makes our music more irrelevant, more pop-like,
0: uh, less socially viral. I agree with you, and I and I think that I for me art somehow always falls in the good, so it's easy for me to distra- draw a distinction where I'm like, well, if this is anti-art, it's going to be bad. I don't is that like a universal human value? Like, is that based on your own personal? value of art or is that based on a societal we should promote art it's somehow an overall good
1: I would push it further than that so the problem with Facebook is that it does give us what we want right at least most of us and that hinders us from building for the future art is one way but not the only way of building for the future so art reflects this bigger problem so if you're just sitting at home and on Facebook and communicating back and forth with your contacts people are addicted to that partly it makes them happy partly they feel alienated or more status conscious but I don't see what they're building for the future so I'd like us to have norms that get us more building for the future and yes that means more art but I wouldn't focus on art only
0: Hey, uh, would it be okay if I pause things here ever so briefly to give you a word from Squarespace? They're our sponsor. If you're ready to start a new business or you have a project you're looking to get off the ground, you can make it stand out with Squarespace. And if you're anything like me, uh, the number of check boxes ahead of you can be daunting, and it's great to check off a bunch at once. Here are some of the ones that Squarespace checks off. It's got analytics built in. If you never have to install or upgrade it. It looks great on any kind of a phone, and you can customize your website, the look, the feel, the settings. Also, it feels unique and totally your own. Templates from world-class designers all without knowing any code. If you get stuck, they've got 24-7 customer support, but I have a feeling you're not even going to need it. You're just going to be blazing along with this new idea that is becoming real, thanks to Squarespace. So go, go to squarespace.com, get a free trial. and When you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM. Thank you, Squarespace. Here I am back with Tyler Cowan. When you were writing about this stuff and trying to put it into a book, like it makes sense to me that your writing uh, has found its, I think, most passionate audience online because a lot of the issues you're writing about go stale very quickly or there's new developments in them right. very quickly. When you were trying to put together these arguments for uh, the complacent class, knowing that you were a year out from anyone reading this More than book, a year. More than a year. Yeah, how, years, how what's, really. what's the cycle for, one of the, for a book like this? It's not a super long book.
1: Once you deliver a manuscript, it can be a year. Yeah. And then there's the time between starting and finishing when along the way, you can change things, but you're a bit locked in in some ways. Yeah. So it's two years plus, I would say, for most
0: books. <laughs> I mean, the idea of writing about the American technology industry on a two-year lag, that's a challenge. Or American
1: politics. Or it's American never American been a harder politics. time to write a book than now. Yeah you've got to see two years out.
0: Okay. So you've done this a few times. You've had to loom two years into the future a few times. What have you learned about writing in the future in that way, knowing that your audience is a year ahead of time?
1: I feel I've been lucky most of all. I've learned luck is very important in yeah. the book market. Uh, I also see a difference between writing in the 1990s. When I wrote books, say in 1995, 96, yeah. it was still two years out. But I was pretty confident what I was looking at was not going to change very much. Yeah. And I was right. I mean, there was sort of more stuff, but the trends were much easier to forecast or something like Trump or how tech is developing. Uh, there are people who get lucky forecasting it, and maybe a very small number are actually prescient and see where it's going. Uh, but it's much more a stab in the dark.
0: I'm always surprised when I see books about cryptocurrency coming yes, out where I'm just pointless. Like, how could you pot, like, if you're writing about Ethereum right now? It may not exist, and it may be worth 100 times more by the time this book comes out. I it's
2: mean, one reason prediction. why
1: podcasts are popular, because you can time them well. Yeah, Blogs actually ought to make a comeback. I'm not sure they will. Twitter, of course, is extremely timely. And a lot of things just shouldn't be in books. Cryptocurrency is a perfect example.
0: So let's switch over to the other side of your writing, which is on Marginal Revolution, which is, as you said, a blog that's existed since 2003 in some form. What have you learned about writing very much on the news cycle, writing the day that you publish things and um, interacting with stories that are developing in real time and trying to write about them when the conclusions haven't been drawn yet.
1: I've learned that writing is the best way of learning. And especially I encourage people to write out opposing or different or alternate points of view as an exercise. And I think we underrate that process. Yeah. And I've tried to do a lot of that on the blog. That's more effective than only reading. If you just read and somehow don't have to process it, uh, it's a very impotent way of trying
0: to learn. I noticed that quality in your writing, like when I was reading The Complacent Plast this morning, I found myself framing the counter arguments while I was reading. Not in a like, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about kind of way, being like, oh, weird. The way I would have processed this was the opposite. Like you write about marijuana legalization in the book and you see marijuana legalization as a form of complacency. Yes, there. though I'm for it, just to be clear. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not critically. Uh, as a to-be-filed uh, next to Seamless under uh, you can hang out at your house with Netflix all night and never interact with anyone, and you're probably not going to go and start a violent revolution when you're stoned. Yeah. Whereas for me, I'm from um, Berkeley, California. So to, historically, marijuana to me represents counterculture and sort of radical thought and also like has tentacles in Silicon Valley and the sort of early first wave of technological innovators um, that sort of looked at mind expansion as a means for developing new ideas. I don't think either of those views is wrong. It's more just a like you could frame this argument both ways. And they're both true. Yeah. And they're both true. That's what I'm interested in. When you write something and someone else says, yeah, but also this, the opposite's also true. Does that validate your idea for you? That makes me so happy. (laughs) I I think of my
1: central contribution or what I'm trying to have it be is teaching people to think of the counter arguments, Mm. that I'm trying to teach a method, always push things one step further. What if, under what conditions, what would make this wrong? And if I write something and people respond to it that way, then I feel very happy and successful. If people disagree with me, I'm a little disappointed,
0: actually. And does that mean that for something like Marginal Revolution, has the growth of other people writing blogs that you can interact with and repost and sort of react to their ideas? You know, um, Ezra Klein, uh, right. people who often appear on there. It seems like. The growth of more people writing this way online creates a better dialectic where you can actually respond to someone's ideas. You don't have to make up the counterargument. You can wait for someone to actually make the counterargument and then actually engage in a dialogue with them.
1: I think the percentage of our population that reads serious material online, I'm not sure how large it is, but it's a lot of people in the world, uh, we are literally teaching ourselves a new way to think and inventing it as we go along. And that, to me, is one of the most exciting developments of the last 15 years. I think it is badly underrated, and I meet academics all the time who have never learned that, but they may be very accomplished within their fields, and I feel so distant from them, almost yeah. like I can't talk to them. They might be smarter or more more successful or whatever, but they feel to me like people living in some kind of stone age because they haven't learned this one thing, and I meet so many young or older people who've learned it.
0: And again, that makes me very optimistic, very excited. Why do you think you took this path, whereas other people who are part of your generation um, who the Internet did not exist when they were in college decided to stay on the sidelines? What made you jump on?
1: I think being addicted to learning in a way. So this new world opens up. You're curious about it. There's floodgates of information. And the old model is I would walk to my university library. Maybe every five days I'd bring two Big bags, and I'd leave the library with books. It would be an actual problem to carry them to my car. And I still do that sometimes,
0: but all of a sudden you have a screen and you click, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And uh, the second part that seems to me dramatic is you may end up somewhere you didn't intend to. Correct. There may be a link somewhere, and you may, like when you're carrying the bags and the books, you know that the limit for your knowledge is going to be what's in the bags of the books. Whereas on the internet, you always may follow one more link or go, one greater level of depth. But this is another story that the, the other side is is that many people see this entire period as like when we started to succumb to Facebook clickbait everything on the internet's stupid blah blah blah. Well,
1: that's true too. It's, it's the Faustian bargain. <laughs> You've got to accept the
0: whole package.
1: Yeah. Most of the package is awful, right? Yeah. And the other thing that worries me about the package is the people you disagree with. You see every day what they're like. And so many of us think less of them. So you see them on Twitter like, oh, he or she is biased. He or she is arrogant. He or she dot, dot, dot. And often those negative impressions are true. So it's easier to dismiss them. And one of the hardest things about reading on the Internet today, especially right now, is avoiding that temptation to dismiss the people you disagree with because they're in your face more than they used to be. How um, Twitter is not the same as RSS. Yeah. Twitter (laughs) pisses you off more.
0: Yeah, it's true. RSS is just opt-in, I feel like. That's right? right. Like every time you're retweeted on Twitter, you're being exposed to a pool of people who didn't opt-in to you. Yes. Do you read the comments? Do you read what people say about you?
1: On Twitter? I check my mentions. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Is it High dispiriting variance.
0: ever? or uh,
1: It energizes me more often than not. Yeah. But you develop a thick skin, which you need anyway. Yeah. But I developed that already through blog comments.
0: <laughs> so the
1: returns to having a thick
0: skin have gone up. So you, you have new students every year. Um, you teach at George Mason in uh, Virginia. When students want to pursue a career like yours, they say, I'm interested in these deep topics, but I want to write online and interact with people and have a following, you know. I don't want to be a professor in some distant university that's never heard from again. I want to be in the mix. What, what do you advise? For Don't like, do
1: a, it! I advise. <laughs> <laughs> I say, look, It is possible to do it, but you have to be very dedicated It's like being a concert pianist. You have to practice like every single day. I feel, I don't mean this as a complaint, it makes me happy, but I literally never have a day off in my life. All day I'm trying to learn things, keep up. So what's happening in Saudi Arabia, which I feel I understand very poorly, I'm trying to absorb all the information I can. I don't expect I'll ever be pontificating about it, but it's there, it's happening. I want to know more than zero. And then the other thing is I'm able to get a lot done because I don't have what I would call a traditional social life. I'm married. My wife and I do a lot of things. We have a daughter and then I blend my work and social life. But just to like go out and do things, I don't do it. I don't want to do it. I want to talk with people related to my work and yeah. family and that's it. And many people want the same, but actually most people don't. They want to sit around and B.S. or watch TV and, quote, unquote, relax. And you've got to write that off if you're going to take this other path.
0: Just don't do it. So for you, going forward, I feel like right now Trump just casts such a long shadow over anything you say about politics. How are you, from your seat, writing about the Trump era?
1: I'm not happy with what has happened. I nonetheless try to be detached and to think of Trump and Trumpism as symptoms Mm -hmm. and to try to understand what are they symptoms of, because when the focus is simply on Trump the person, I suspect that's counterproductive. Hmm. And I think uh, there's something about the contemporary world that moved too fast, some mix of globalization, automation, blending of cultures, mixing of genders that people have reacted to very badly, destructively. And this is one symptom of that, But it probably means there are other symptoms coming, and I'd like to think about how to set it right so the other symptoms are manageable.
0: Talk about that idea of detaching yourself, because I think most people can't detach themselves from themselves as a writer. When your personal feelings about Trump sort of start bubbling up, how do you recognize that, and how do you not, how do you have your writing stay independent from that attached sense?
1: Well, finding other things to write about. It's too easy to write about Trump right now, but so many people are doing it. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's drive to West Virginia and write another story about the people who still support Trump. Uh, It doesn't actually interest me that much. I'd rather think more speculatively, think about the rest of the world, ask why are Poland and Hungary and Ethiopia moving in what seem to be authoritarian directions, even though they've had pretty rapid economic growth. Poland's been growing at an average of 4% for well over 20 years. And they've opted for their version of alt-right and why did that happen so it's not just about economic hardship there's something about the relative balance of power in the world that in in many different places has encouraged greater what you might call authoritarianism but in a very new version supplemented by social media uh, maybe some of it has to do with the rise of china i've written about that so china is seen as the one country racking up a lot of victories which is sort of true of course and they have an authoritarian system So there's some kind of subconscious psychological meme that spreads throughout the world. And you have places like Turkey, of course, Syria, really many others going in similar directions. It's interesting that Latin America seems fairly insulated from this. Again, Venezuela aside. So to kind of shift the whole question and ask, well, why isn't this happening so much in Latin America? They had Lula, but Lula actually turned out to be a reformer. And for the most part, life there has continued. So to kind of reframe questions in a way you're less emotionally
0: invested in and try to say something new, I guess. You described the feeling of the world moving too fast, which I think is like a, a very core feeling that people in America can understand right now, the ground moving beneath them. And that's sort of a lot of what's at stake with Trump. Did things move too quickly for these people? And this is a negative reaction. And then we also have the idea of complacency and you know, a person being complacent. Until I read the book, I would have thought those ideas were opposed, right? The right. world can't be moving too fast and people can't be too complacent but it's at the same both. time. But it is both. So but Many things aren't moving at all, right? Yeah. Like not a lot of wage growth. People don't
1: move across state lines as often as they used to. So this weird mix of what's moving and what's not seems to be inducing people to feel especially out of control. And that makes our politics stranger. Do you study psychology? I read psychology.
0: Study a tricky word. Yeah. <laughs> I think about psychology. Because that's like your perception of how much of the world around you changing is as much a psychology issue as a economics issue.
1: That's right. So you think about immigration. Immigrants have come to this country. I would say for the most part, they've been very successful. It's gone remarkably well. That makes me very happy. And the actual assimilation problem is the people who've lived here their families for generations can't so easily assimilate to the new world created by immigrants so that's a very different take on how we think about assimilation oh can the immigrants assimilate to america well we're in brooklyn brooklyn is not what it used to be and you need to assimilate to that in some way presumably you've done it very well but it's a big challenge and we take for granted that it can be done because we live in our own bubbles but i think it's very hard for people so parts of their family ties, their wages, their job description, where they live hasn't changed much and then what's around them. They feel
0: left behind, out of control. How would you recommend a more traditional journalist bring some of these ideas into their reporting? Cuz I think like there's generally like a a backlash against pushing a lot of statistics and articles. People want human anecdotes and they want um To understand emotionally the story but when I read your writing I'm always surprised by how many I'm like wow how have I never seen a statistic uh, like this like how do I not know that startups are actually down not up in America that's literally something I've never seen reported when you pick up the New York Times or a magazine and you're reading about these topics you care about are you constantly like why is there not more of this in here no, I try to be detached and not get upset at media or mainstream
1: media. I don't really attack media very much. Maybe I'm disappointed in it. Yeah, but you start attacking things and saying they're wrong. One of the best things you can do for your own thought is not to go around telling yourself that other people are wrong. It's sort of easy, it's lazy, it's sloppy. Of course, most people are wrong most of the time. You can always find mistakes. But if you detach and you don't get too caught up like in the tech enthusiasm, oh my goodness, this is so wonderful. Yeah, kind of breathless PowerPoint. You'll actually see and notice these facts more and then be keen on presenting them to others. And it's a different path. So I would encourage journalists not to be more passionate, but to be more detached. Hmm. But they don't want to do it because you're paid so little. It's a profession you only go into if you're passionate. So it's a contradiction of sorts.
0: Yeah. And it's also like I, I feel like generally the advice for young writers is to write what you know and to bring your own experiences into the story, which is I'm not kind sure of the opposite true. of detachment. That's, you, right. that's bad advice, in your opinion.
1: Not always, but it <laughs> leads to bias. It leads to prejudice. Yeah. You go down rabbit holes that confirm what you thought you already knew. I don't know. I would rather tell people, travel to a country you've never thought of going to. Like, my last trip was to Macedonia. Yeah. Uh, stimulated so much thought in me. Yeah. I would prefer journalists
0: go more to weird places and do nothing there for a little while. So you're not a traditional, you're not a travel journalist. You're not going to Macedonia to tell people about Macedonia, but it does seem like international travel does inform your work. You've also been maintaining an incredible blog of uh, ethnic food reviews in, right. the, uh, in the D.C. metropolitan area. I want to talk about that. But when you're doing it outside of uh, the United States and you're going somewhere and you're learning things and that's informing your work, there's a backlash against being the, the guy who reports on what the cab driver told him on the way and trying to understand these extremely complex places based on your experiences of few weeks as a tourist. I'm curious, like how you try to be a detached observer when you're in Macedonia. How do you not try and fill in the blanks about Macedonia?
1: Well, use it as an entry point for what you're already working on. Yeah. So one interesting thing to me about Macedonia is that some of the biggest debates in the public arena are about their statues, yeah. which should be put up, which should be torn down. I don't feel I'll ever resolve their debates, but if I take a bit of what I learned there and apply it to our debates about statues, Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy, yeah. that to me is interesting. Macedonia also may be the country where Donald Trump is most popular.
0: Oh, interesting. Trying to figure
1: out, well, why is that? That's interesting. Again, you don't have to pretend I'm going to explain to you all the fundamentals of Macedonia and why they like Trump. But it's another mirror on why Americans like Trump. So look for points of connection. Uh, Think laterally. Don't think in terms of here's my final theory of whatever, even if it's your own country or region. And just keep your mind open. And look at little things like the food in Macedonia. Why does it take the form it does? Why are the breads and cheeses there so good, better than anywhere else in the Balkans? I don't know yet, but I'm still thinking about it. So what inspired you to start uh, reviewing restaurants? My very first academic job was at UC Irvine in Orange County, California, which at the time was a boring place. But the one thing it had was (laughs) great ethnic (laughs) food. At the time. (laughs) Well, I don't... Yeah, still... (laughs) So I wrote up just my notes on the yeah. places I liked, and I would mimeograph them and hand them out to my colleagues. This was pre-internet, yeah, more pre-modern internet. Yeah.
0: Irvine's like a strong, I mean, a strong taco area, I would think. But Asian food, it yeah, was a lot of a lot of Vietnamese food, Korean, yeah. all
1: sorts of things. Great Thai food, which then in the Northeast you didn't have as much outside of New York City. Yeah. So this to me was a revelation. I typed up my notes, and then later I moved to George Mason, and I had these typed notes. I started it here, and then there's this thing—the internet. So I was a very early food blogger, very early in the 1990s, and I put up my reviews. I didn't call it a blog. It would just be a long, big splat of a scroll, but it worked. Now it's 110 single-space pages. (laughs) What did you learn from writing 110 pages on restaurants in the D.C. area? That immigration in the D.C. area has worked better than any other part of America, probably. That assimilation is possible. That immigrants are not as different from us as we might think. The best cuisines to eat at are often those where there's a large number of restaurants in a particular area rather than just one and that you can study a particular kind of dining in the place where you live for about 27 years and at the end of the day all the time you can still be surprised.
0: A lot of the journalists I talk to on this show when you ask them about how they report and they sort of go beat by beat you realize that they're actually following a form of a script, because they've done this a lot of times. It's, you know, okay, I want to ask a person about this. This is kind of where I go first, and then I go here and there. When you're sitting down in a restaurant, what do you do in the restaurant? How, what's, what's your ritual? I want to be arbitrary. Yeah. So you read reviews in these local magazines, Washingtonian.
1: I mean, they're sort of well-crafted, but they felt the need to kind of survey what the restaurant is and what it does and different dishes. And I want to think of myself as a, a cranky diner, Who wants something unreasonable and is just looking for it in a maybe not so rational way. And uh, evaluate the restaurant from that point of view and give a very subjective review. What are you looking for? One dish that's really going to wow me and surprise me and bring me back. And most places I don't go back to.
2: So what
0: do you usually order when you're doing a review? Like how many dishes is usually on your table? If I'm
1: going with two people, I'd like to have five or six dishes. Okay. I'm not going to eat all of them. I just stayed in a cafe China on 37th and 5th with my wife. It was an amazing meal, one-star Michelin, one place, but prices are not too high. And we had six dishes, didn't finish them, but probably ate more of them than we should. But then you want to speak to the staff, find someone who will talk truth to you and signal to them you are credible. And mm. that's hard to do. <laughs> you need to understand each region of the world. Convince them, well, you've been to that region of China. You understand it. Talk to them about what might be their hometown or somewhere in China that's not Shanghai or Beijing. And if they believe you, they will bring you what's best. But yeah. to build trust is typically my first goal in a restaurant. Build trust. That's my two-word recipe of advice. So, okay, so
0: you try to connect with them, show that you're credible, and then you you need to further say that this isn't what you think is the best dish for me that I'm looking for. I'm looking for what you think is the best dish. Exactly. What do the people in the kitchen like
1: to eat? What do you like to eat? And right. they're uh, often reluctant to tell you because
0: they feel <laughs> they will steer you into some kind of big mistake. Does that mean you've achieved a level of credibility across all of these different cuisines that you, you review? Because usually I'm like, when I'm like Mongolian, I'm like, I, I'm i not credible. Like your read on me as being uncredible is correct. If it's a Latino
1: restaurant, I can speak Spanish and that almost always works. Uh, Mongolian places, I mean, they're not that diverse. There's a number of cuisines where they haven't learned yet how to dumb down the cuisine. Yeah, Burmese would be another example. A lot of Korean dishes. Maybe they'd even like to dumb it down and sell out, but they can't. They don't know how, like the right. genre in this country is too new. And you go to those in some ways it's easy work because what they're serving is for each other and maybe they make their living by catering weddings or big functions and it is all geared for other Mongolians, Koreans fill in the blank. But Chinese food's not that way. You can go so wrong
0: even in a good Chinese restaurant. For someone visiting the uh, D.C. region, what's one place that you would recommend for an experience?
1: I would say go to the Ethiopian places in West Alexandria and order completely raw beef, Kitfo. It's a specialty. It's fantastic there. Go to Afghan Bistro in Springfield. Go to our Uyghur restaurants, our Chinese regional restaurants, Elephant Jumps for Thai. It's a great place to live for ethnic dining.
0: Okay, so uh, Complacent Class is out now, um, yes. been out. What What's the next thing that's exciting to you? What are the stories that you're following most passionately?
1: The world. So why it seems to be that some countries are moving to greater authoritarianism, why some kinds of stability seem to be declining while others are going up. Europe actually seems more stable than in, say, 2011. China has not cracked up economically. Those are two huge pluses. We pay our attention to the kind of mid-tier countries, places like Turkey, that now seem to think they can just go crazy and do what they want. So you have this odd blend of some mid-tier countries behaving more erratically and other parts of the world doing better. The
0: video of Erdogan's guards beating people in Washington Washington. is is still the most um, indelible video I watched in the last year. And he basically got away with it. He completely got away with it. So other leaders see this and they think well they can
1: get away with what they want to do as well and they do it because they can so like is this process stable what are its limits Uh, that I'm thinking about a great deal just always general questions in economics how is it that people perceive the world differently how does culture shape economic outcomes I write for Bloomberg now, twice a week. Bloomberg View, yeah, yeah, that's very rewarding. The blog every day, yeah. I'm on Twitter. You writing um, for New York Times now also. I did for ten years, 10 years but years. I switched to Bloomberg. Bloomberg okay, that's right. So it's one or know the those other, mutually with those two. mutually exclusive. Mutu- yeah. Absolutely, the New
0: York Times is usually mutually exclusive. There's not a lot of uh, splitting your time with the New York Times. Correct. What's the difference between like when you write on Bloomberg View versus your own blog versus in a book? Are you completely different audiences for each of these? Bloomberg View. You should assume people don't know who you
1: are or anything you've said to date. Mm. So that's a very different framing. Marginal Revolution. I write for the regulars. I'm not saying everyone who reads it is a regular, yeah. but if you're not, tough luck. Do you prefer
0: writing for the hardcore or for the noobs? Uh, they complement each other, oh. and you know, only only one pays you. So, <laughs> do you do you feel an obligation of like? Oh, I can't do a Bloomberg column about this. I already covered this on Marginal Revolution. They or should both first. be fresh. Yeah, Both be fresh. Yeah.
1: Obviously, the economy as a topic you're always covering right. in some way. But you want No you, recycling, no, no duplicating. I don't rerun old blog posts. Yeah. It's tough, right? Every day, you know, for
0: 14 years. What's your process for coming up? You know, you're sitting there in the morning and it's like Bloomberg columns due in 36 hours, whatever. Like, how do you make that spot decision about what you're going to write about? Uh, it's never really a spot decision. So blog posts,
1: I always have a stock of maybe five to seven oh, okay. evergreens in inventory. I try not to use them, but if I'm stuck, I don't want to sweat it and or maybe make a mistake. Yeah, I just pull one of those out. Any typical post is written two or three days in advance and edited over the course of two or three days. Same with the Bloomberg column; those follow the news cycle more. They're less arbitrary than what's on the blog. And I just think if I was a Bloomberg reader and there was this Economist columnist, what would I want him to write about? So I'm thinking for next week, is there a column I can write about the implications of Saudi Arabia that's not this guy explaining Saudi to me because I don't feel I can do that, but it does affect the global economy. Right. And over the next two days, I will look for that hook yeah, and probably write up a draft you know, tomorrow or Sunday and maybe submit it on Tuesday. So
0: it's probably like the privatization of the Saudi oil company that's like one component in the stew or what are the economic interlinkages yeah. with other places and then you got the Riles and staying in a fancy hotel they're as prisoners of, right in, that's in amazing a fancy hotel jail
1: I'd love to see the room service bills right yeah
0: I, for something there's something that just seems very very modern about like people being detained in a luxury hotel that's the that's most right. Saudi story possible I agree um, well thank you so much for doing this my I really pleasure thank it. you and um, where can people find you online
1: they can google my name Tyler Cowan. that will bring you to marginal revolution me on Twitter my ethnic dining guide also my Bloomberg columns There's yeah a link to all of you got, a, you've got a rich revolution. top page
0: some people top off on the first two or three Google hits mm-hmm. you got a full page of quality content try to work every day <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. that was the long form podcast thanks very much to tyler cowan for coming in on his vacation uh thanks to my co-hosts evan ratliff and max linsky get well soon max linsky we're all thinking of you if they don't let you out of that chicago hospital soon we are going to come liberate you thanks to our editor for this episode janelle peiffer our intern angelo velez our incredible sponsors squarespace and mailchimp we'll be back next week